Good morning. Oh, what a great response. <laughs> I'm heartened. <laughs> Let's go over a couple of announcements. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. Nehemiah 4, verse 6. Today is our communion service. Following worship service, we'll take a 10-minute break, as usual, and we gather when you hear the piano. Uh, no evening service tonight. Uh, you have Andrea's contact number. They're on vacation, but uh, in emergency, you can still contact them if you need to. Uh, note the deficit in the bulletin. Not as dire as it looks, to be honest with you. Uh, new acts and facts are here for July. Care package collection for the soldiers in Afghanistan. Uh, Dale and Pam's grandson, Jacob, is serving. And uh, as a former serviceman myself, I can't tell you what a great feeling it is to get a, a package from home. Just stuff that you can't normally get when you're in the field or aboard ship. Uh, it, uh, it, really, it really means a lot to get something like that from, uh, from family and friends. And I would really encourage that uh, we pull together as a church and, and uh, do what we can to, to, to send them some little bit of love and joy and, and comfort you know, from home. So, and I imagine uh, you, anybody has questions, you get with, with Pam directly on that, and uh, she can give you what, uh, what they're looking for. Youth camp coming July 14th through 19th. Uh, more information to follow. Uh, and if you are the last person to leave the church, please check to make sure all the lights are turned off on all the floors and, and all the doors are locked. It was made my attention this morning that somebody didn't lock the door after Wednesday night service. So we need to, we need to be a little bit more heads up on that. Any uh, other messages or information that I haven't been made privy to? Anybody got anything else? All right, then our scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Psalms 109, page 950 in the Pew Bible.
you join us in standing as we begin our program? Jim, would you kindly lead us? standing. Our opening hymn has been changed. Uh, it was 64. We're going to try uh, hymn number one this morning. Hymn number one. Andrea is not here to lead you. I don't see Jolene, so you folks are stuck with me, so sing loud to compensate, please. <laughs> Seated. 
<clears throat> Terry has her hand up first. What do you like? America the Beautiful. Okay. Five seventy-two in the breath. stand with me. I uh, would like to do our scripture reading for today. It is uh, taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4, verse 1 through 9, page 754. 
When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became very angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashad heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that there were gaps being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Oh, Lord, have your blessing upon this holy and inspired scripture. Amen. <clears throat> Remain standing, and we'll go to hymn number 280.
Our scripture text this morning is Nehemiah chapter 4. Last Lord's Day, we saw how Nehemiah, in a secret move, inspected the condition of Jerusalem's walls at night. His arrival in Jerusalem caused no small stir. The governors of the Trans-Euphrates region learned that the king had appointed him governor of Judea. They didn't much like that. The excess of taxation and the humiliation inflicted on the Jews by these former governors, was now about to come to an end. Nehemiah had come to promote the welfare of the Jews, but they didn't know exactly in what way. Nehemiah's chief political threat was Sanballat, governor of Samaria. He was a pagan man who was an idolater. Tobiah the Ammonite was a Jewish proselyte who had married his way into the Jewish community by feigning allegiance to Jehovah, yet he sided with Sanballat. It's kind of a, it's just good business kind of attitude to be on the side of right. Or in his case, he would thought on the side of Who's the stronger? Nehemiah's conduct was that he gathered a handful of men and he inspected the condition of the walls at night without telling anyone what he's up to. And the next day he challenged the Jews to rebuild the wall, which he called a good work. A good work. We drew out a number of lessons. There is a time in every Christian endeavor when investigation and analysis must end and the work begin. You can analyze things to death, never get anything done, but somewhere along the line, you've got to put your hand to the work. Secondly, when God is in a work, the work is a good work. doesn't matter what it is. If he's in it, it's a good work. Thirdly, there are certain tasks which only the people of God can do for God, and the unbelieving and unrepentant have no part in it. The Jews took the principle, this is our city, and these are all our walls that we're building. Thank you, but no thanks, they said to the Arabs that wanted to work and others of the trans-Euphrates area. They just felt it would be better if it was just our own people working on the wall who... You know, people who had a heart for it and would be working with all of their strength to accomplish the task. Well, today's study brings us to the actual rebuilding of the wall and how that went down. So as we come, let's ask for the Lord's presence. Heavenly Father, send your spirit upon us to teach us of the principles that we find in the behavior of these Old Testament saints. 
They weren't perfect men and women. We're not perfect men and women. But they were men and women of faith, and we pray that we're men and women of faith. We pray that we would learn from their courage, their faith, their fortitude, their desire to stretch themselves a bit, to go beyond the comfortable, to do what needed to be done even if it was hard and arduous. Sometimes we, uh, we shun away from things because it's going to be hard to do, so we don't want it. There's too much of that. Life is hard, and the work of God is especially hard because the enemies of God and the enemies of our soul does, do not want the work of God to, for, to go forward. But Lord, you do, and so I pray that you will grant us that understanding. Bless and honor your word for the glory of the Savior, we pray. Amen. We're looking at the subject here in Nehemiah 4, the building of the wall. If you were to just look one chapter back at chapter 3, you would observe what happened after Nehemiah challenged the Israelites with these words, Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. Chapter 2, verse 17 said that. What happened is that the people took Nehemiah at his word, and they probably, through their tribal leaders, They apportioned sections of the wall to individual families and clans as their own personal building assignment. And what a mixture it was. Eliashib, the high priest, verse 1, and his fellow priests rebuilt the sheep gate and dedicated it. It's the only section of the wall which was dedicated, and I'm guessing that that was so as the first installment in a very, very huge project. It was the equivalent of saying, as we do when we bring our tithes to the Lord, the whole sum, the whole project, O Lord, is yours. But bless this portion which we are engaged in. Now, of course, in time, as the wall began to be completed, the idea would be that the whole project was for God from start to finish, not just the section of the wall built by the priests. Verse 5 tells us that the men of Tekoa built a section of the wall without their nobles lifting so much as a finger to help. Okay, what do you do if your leaders aren't going to lead? Well, these men worked without the leaders. That's what they did. You're not going to help us. You're not going to lead us. We're going to go ahead with the project. And they did. There may have been a little insurrection on the part of the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, verse 7, because they were under the authority of the governors of this trans-Euphrates area, the Persians, yet still... They worked on the wall too. And there's some rather unusual workers that are mentioned. 
Verse 12, Shalom, a ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired a section of the wall with the help, get it now, with the help of his daughters. His daughters? Are we reading this right? Brethren, we are talking about dirty, heavy, back-breaking work. And yet here are the ladies lending their effort to work on a section of the wall. It isn't only men who know how to work a trowel or leverage stones into place in a wall. Verse 31, 32 mentions goldsmiths and merchants building a section of the wall. Goldsmiths, storekeepers, think about this. These were skilled craftsmen and retailers who were not used to hard manual labor. I suspect that they had bloody hands and sore muscles at the end of each day, but still they labored and were responsible for completing a section of the wall. This kind of dedication and drive is very commendable. It demonstrates that people with a heart to work can accomplish much where their skills would otherwise be lacking. I remember when I was a, a little tyke. Yeah, I, there was a day when I was a little tyke. My grandpa was building his own house in the country in Pennsylvania. Well, I wanted to help. I wanted to help carry cinder block for him as he laid up the basement wall. I was about that tall, not very big and not very strong. He tried to shoo me away. You're, no, no, you're going to fall and hurt yourself. Better that you go home. But I persisted. He had to walk a plank across an open ditch to the wall. Carrying but one block at a time. The rough edges of the block cut into my hand. You know what it's like with cinder block. Banged against my knees because the block was just about as long as I was. But I carried blocks until my arms could no longer support their weight. And then I had to quit. There couldn't have been many with only one at a time. But when I drive by the house, which now belongs to another party, I remember that I helped Grandpa build it. And it brings back fond memories. You never know, brethren, what you can do till you try. Goldsmiths, silversmiths, merchants, priests, Women, people with no encouragement from their nobles. They all put their hands and their backs to the work and the wall of Jerusalem began to be resurrected out of the ruins 
and, um, and the ash. Paul told the Corinthian church brethren, think of what you were when God called you. Not many of you wise by human standards. Not many were influential. <laughs> Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 and following. And within context... Paul was talking about the Corinthians' call to salvation through God's sovereign choice. But the principle applies in this as well. The people whom God called out of the world to comprise the church of God at Corinth were the ordinary people of society, even the subnormal in terms of the ignorant, the non-influential, the weak, the lowly. And this is what Nehemiah had in the Israelites to work on the wall. No, I suspect there were a few masons and carpenters in the bunch. Maybe these acted as the foremen over the work. But the vast majority of the laborers were the ordinary citizens and even people like the daughters of Shalom, the goldsmith, the merchants who didn't know one end of trial from another. And yet God used this unskilled, untrained, underqualified bunch of workers to resurrect the stones of the wall from the rubble. And you know what? It began to be noticed. Look at chapter 4, the first two verses. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry. And he was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are the, these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they... Bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are. Well, you can just see the contempt, can't you? Can't you hear it in his voice? The great fears of Sanballat and Tobiah, to name another, was that Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem would promote the welfare of the Israelites. Chapter 2, verse 10. Well, their worst fears were now coming true because that's what was going on. Now they discovered what Nehemiah was up to. He was refortifying the city by rebuilding its broken walls. In his anger and rage, Sanballat ridiculed the Jews in the presence of his associates 
and his army saying, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? You can just hear their, his contempt. Word had come to Samballat that the wall was being rebuilt. But he knew very well that there was no engineers in Jerusalem of any stature, no tradesmen familiar with the do's and don'ts constructing such a monumental edifice. A wall with high watchtowers as part of its structure, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 11, verse 25, talks about those towers. Multiple gates of tremendous size and weight, requiring iron workers and locksmith, chapter 3, verse 6, verse 13, a wall which in certain sections was covered over by a roof, chapter 3, verse 15, a wall that in places had to contain the water of the pool of Siloam, verse 15, a wall involving sharp angles, steep ascents, verse 19, Walls upon which many houses of the local inhabitants were part of the structure. Verse 23, verse 24. What I'm saying is that this was not a project for amateurs. But amateurs was all that Nehemiah had. And Sanballat knew it. This is why he speaks of the feeble Jews trying to bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble. And Tobiah the Ammonite added his two cents, verse 3, what are they building? If even a fox climbed upon it, he would break down the wall of stones. He is suggesting, of course, that the wall these unskilled, untrained Israelites were building was of such poor workmanship that it would not support the weight of even one of the littlest of God's creatures, let alone the parapets and the gates and the roof and the houses which comprised the original edifice. You know, mockery and disdain are employed by the people of the world continually against the efforts of God's people to serve him. We are constantly ridiculed and belittled. Job in his misery said, My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. Job 17 verse 1 and 2. I mean, talk about kicking a man when he's down. (laughs) Job is in misery. You you know he's suffering from these sore boils. When Elisha passed by Bethel along the road, some youths came out of the town and they jeered at him. Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! 2 Kings 2, verse 23. No doubt referring to Elisha's predecessor, Elijah, who had been transported to heaven in a whirlwind. So they're mocking. They're saying, you know, why don't you go, why don't you take a hike? Why don't you take a flight? 
Why don't you go up? Go up. David speaks of a time of vulnerability. He says, when I stumbled, they gathered in glee. Attackers gathered against me when I was unaware. They slandered me without ceasing. Like the ungodly, they maliciously mocked. They gnashed their teeth at me. Psalm 35, verse 50. And this was his own people. What had David done to deserve that kind of treatment? The context tells us. David is speaking. When they were ill, I put on sackcloth and I humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my friend or my brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. Yet these were now the associates that were seeking his life. Luke tells us the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy who hit you. And they said many other insulting things to him. Luke 22, verse 63 and following. Luke 23, 11. Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant gown, excuse me, an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That's our world. That's the world of our culture. Things are no different for us as the followers of Christ in our age. Jude reminded his readers, Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. Jude verse 17 and Nothing new. We might ask, well, what did we ever do to deserve this kind of treatment? May I say it has nothing to do with you and me. Nothing. Nehemiah says in verse 4, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Verse 5, They have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Yes, okay, but why? What possible reason could Sanballat and Tobiah have for ridiculing the work these Jews were doing on their own city, on their own wall, in their own land, in their own town, under their own governor's leadership? What's the problem here? David, in addressing God, says, I endure scorn, I endure scorn for your sake. I'm a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my own mother's sons, 
for zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Psalm 69, verse 7 and following. Think about this. If these Jews had been building a sports arena or a reservoir or some other neutral structure, Sanballat and Tobiah would have said nothing. They would have done nothing. But they were not building something for pleasure or sport. They were refortifying the city of God. They were attempting in their labor to bring Jerusalem back to her former glory. When Israel under God ruled the nations, a day when the nations represented by Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab were compelled to acknowledge that there was a God in the heavens worthy of men's respect. It's the same today, brethren. You want to have a Bible study in your home or a prayer meeting? No problem. No one from the world will bother you about that. Try to have a Bible study at the local high school or bring back prayer as in the earlier days of our country when this nation operated on godly principles. Try that and you jeopardize your reputation, your tranquility, and even your freedom. Leave God out of your public life and your public endeavors and no one from the world will give you a second thought. But the moment you stand with God and for God and make it known like Nehemiah, that what you are doing is for God's glory, and all hell will break loose on you. That's the gospel truth. Now, I get it. People say that they don't hate God. They say that. I don't hate God. They would be very offended and probably insulted that you or I would suggest that what they say and do is born out of a malice for God. but they cannot speak peaceably to or about God's people. We cannot get a fair, rational hearing on any of our ideas in the press. We cannot be appreciated even for our stand on morality, which will benefit all of society at large, if adopted. Everything we say and do is under suspicion As the people of Christ were treated like the society of Jesus' day treated him, hating him for no reason, John 15, verse 25. Obeying not his teaching, so disobeying your teaching as well, verse 20 of John 5. Seeing the miracles of Christ, yet they had hated both me and my father, says Jesus, John 5, verse 24. And we, the living miracles of Christ's transformation, are hated in the same way and for the same reason. Oh my, what are we going to do? What shall we do? 
all this hatred floating around us. I don't think I can maintain a good self-image. I don't think I can continue to work for God if the society in which I live is going to turn hostile towards me. Oh me, oh my, what am I going to do? There are Christians who wimp out just like that. There is no reason for this. Where in God's word, in the teachings of Christ, were we ever kept in the dark about what it would mean to be a disciple of Jesus? How has God deceived us? What didn't he tell us that he should have told us about becoming one of his disciples? Why all the surprise? Have you paid attention to the lessons of history? Where Christian men and women the world over were martyred for their faith? Have you taken the scriptures seriously? Sometimes we listen to the sentimental whitewashing. I think of dispensational prognosticators who have predicted that the church of Christ will be raptured out of this big bad world before things get too unbearable. Was Stephen part of the New Testament body of Christ? He saw Christ in the heavens, but it was no enrapturing deliverance. No, he was stoned to death in the town square while Saul of Tarsus looked on Acts 7. And when Saul organized a concerted assault on the people of Christ, and in his own words pursued them to foreign cities did Christ appear and rescue them from the clutches of the Jewish zealot Paul says I persecuted the followers of this way to their death arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison Acts 22 verse 4 John the Baptist was imprisoned and decapitated because he dared to preach against Herod's adulterous affair with Herodias, wife of his brother Philip. Matthew 14, you can read about it. Peter and John were imprisoned by the Jewish council for healing a a lame man in Jesus' name. Yeah, that's a reason to imprison somebody. Now when they did finally release him. They beat him first with rods. The Apostle James, brother of John, was arrested by Herod and put to death by the sword. Paul and Silas were arrested in Philippi, beaten with rods, imprisoned in the inner dungeon with their extremities confined in the stocks. None of these 
Christian people were exempted from trouble. If they were rescued, as in the case of Paul and Silas, their deliverance was after they had endured much pain and suffering. Peter wrote a whole book, and we've been studying that. He wrote a whole book of the Bible to encourage the suffering saints of his day, First Peter, chapter, the, the first book of Peter. What I'm saying is that there's a cross to bear in following Christ, and those who refuse to carry it cannot be his disciple. I didn't say it. He said it. Mark 8, verse 34. In fact, Jesus taught, in this world you will have trouble. John 16, verse 33. That's God's word on it. Though you may wish it otherwise, that it, there is no otherwise. That's Christ's pronouncement. We avoid such things only by being cowardly, by trying to blend into the woodwork, so to speak. But that's before men. He has promised to deny before the angels of God. Luke 12, verse 9. Well, Nehemiah didn't wimp out like this. Nor did his fellow Israelites who were working on the project. Sanballat, through ridicule and mockery, and false reports, and boy, they really went after Nehemiah. The handwriting was on the wall. The cat was out of the bag. Once these governors of Persia covered Nehemiah's intent, he's building this wall, their anger was aroused and they became incensed. Verse 1, what's that? They became out of control with rage. The walls. And Sanballat had an army, verse 2, Nehemiah then. Talk about being outnumbered and outgunned. But <laughs> Nehemiah was not intimidated in any of the show of force, nor was he demoralized because he knew he was despised, verse 4. What did he do? Well, he laid the problem before God in prayer, verse 4, seeking vindication alone. God's vindication. And he continued the building. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all of their heart. <laughs> I love that. The intimidation of Sanballat and Tobiah backfired. Instead of scaring the people into quitting, it empowered them to continue, and this time to work with all their heart. This is how our faith will work for us, brethren, when our eyes are fixed upon God. This is nothing less than another David and Goliath story. Nehemiah and his workers, they, they were no match for Sanballat and his army. 
Sanballat was like Goliath standing in the open field, calling out curses and blasphemies against Israel and against Israel's God. Until one man, a boy, refused to be intimidated by his size and strength and went out to face him alone with nothing more than his faith and a slingshot. There's some powerful lessons here for us. When fears arise because the world in which we live is hostile to the Christian gospel, and it is, we're not to quit in fear, but work all the harder. Jeremiah's workers didn't throw down their tr- 